Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We got some great guests in the studio here in New York with us. Mark Chan, they work Brown last week. Harriman, global head of currency strategy, and Lakshman Akshathan. He is, of course, of economic cycle research, co-founder and chief operations officer. Both of them joining us now, guys. Great to have you with us, Mark. I'm going to get a hard time for the next two hours about taking a vacation, so your support would be um, welcome for the next ten minutes. So, okay. good to see you again. Good to see you, mate. Let's start with emerging markets. How do they catch a break, and where does the anchor come from? Because Argentina and Turkey are both trying. Yeah, I think this is the ironic thing. Argentina hiked rates sharply last week. Currency sells off. Turkey, reluctant to raise interest rates. Currency sells off. I think that means to me we're in a bearish market for emerging markets, and we're going to stay that way for quite a while. Contagion risk, Mark? I think there is some contagion. I think we talked about that earlier with India. I think it's primarily a contagion story. But I think Argentina, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, these are policies, not just the Federal Reserve, but these are domestic policies, yeah. policy mistakes, or policies that repel investors as opposed to attract them. Lakshman, when it comes to emerging markets, there's mm. also technical issues, liquidity issues, but there's fundamental ones too. South Africa entering a recession this morning. What's happening with the fundamentals of some of these big economies? Well, I think it's really... Uh, in our view, happening in the context of a global industrial slowdown. So you have uh, a cycling down, a deceleration of global industrial growth, and EM is uh, cued to the industrial growth cycle. They're very sensitive to that. They're big exporters. And that's the backdrop on which a lot of these other structural uh, vulnerabilities uh, are being exposed very quickly. I mean, within a lot, when you mentioned this earlier, the idea of a global slowdown, and uh, you're so vector-based. What is the vector in the U.S. Mm. economy now, given EM weakness, given you know the dollar DXY 95.55 is dollar strength? I think the, it, our work shows the vector is to the downside. We're uh, we've we've peaked in growth, and we're and we're beginning to decelerate. I think it's very hard to see with that 4.2% yeah. GDP growth in Q2. Uh, but it is there uh, when you look at the broad coincident data, uh, broader than GDP. Uh, and it makes sense in the context of a global economy, which is decelerating. So our view is that all of this great strength that we've seen right. uh, for the past over a year now uh, is cyclical. It's not a breakout, not a big structural breakout. And that's probably the most important well, fundamental backdrop it, piece to discuss. And that goes to the vector of the um, uh, the dollar strength. We've had huge variance interview to interview, uh, Mark, on the dollar. Stronger, weaker, the impulse of it, the second derivative of dollar movement. What What is the synthesis you have at Brown Brothers Harriman on the dollar? Do we still look for the dollar to strengthen, driven by the policy mix in the U.S.? It's a tight a tight monetary policy, looser fiscal policy, tends to be the best policy mix for a country's currency. You've got that positive for the U.S., which also boosts U.S. growth, which lets us be strong enough to withstand mm. uh, some of these uh, the trade tensions and the trade wars we're picking. And I, so I think that uh, this, coupled with these 
problems in emerging markets, and the slowdown we're seeing, I think, more pronounced in Europe than the U.S. Okay. right now. How do you respond then, and I, I'm beginning to see this phrase, Plaza Accord, creep in here every once in a while. The fact is, when dollar gets strong, it, the chart gets pointy. It abruptly reverses because of political reasons. Are we anywhere near that, where the politicians step in and say, enough of a stronger dollar? Well, I, I think that what happened with the plaza is not just U.S. objecting to the dollar strength, but Europe was objecting and Japan was objecting to their currency's weakness. This is what's different this time, is that only the U.S. really is objecting. Once in a while, Trump says something about the dollar. But so far, I'd say Europe sees the weaker currency as not so problematic. Right. And same thing with Japan. I think Japan would welcome a weaker yen. And so I think that right now, we haven't reached a pain yeah. threshold sufficient to get a coordinated response. But Mark, the way we're framing this conversation mm. at the moment is that the dollar strength is despite the trade dispute. Could we ask the question that it might be because of the trade dispute? The flow story has been really important. And Buy America has been a big theme off the back of this. Yeah, no, so I, I think the two are really related in the sense that uh, what we, what we ha what's happening is partly it's the flows out of emerging markets out of Europe for I think three or four weeks in a row flows out of those markets into the U.S. That's helping strengthen the dollar. And then you've got this policy mix that's helping draw this capital to the U.S. That's why I really think that it's really hard for emerging market countries or even countries like Australia to fund a current account deficit when you've got the U.S. raising interest rates and sucking in the world savings. What does a strong dollar launchman do? within economic cycles. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. part of the discussion, mm -hmm. yet it is a discussion of everything we do. If, if we get Chandler's strong dollar, mm -hmm. what does that do to the impulse of your economic cycles? Well, um, it's a great question, and I don't exactly know the answer. I have to. I don't want to predict. That's good. I don't. It's, I don't want to predict. It's the Tuesday before school starts. No, no one has any answers I don't right wanna, now. I don't want to. What do you mean you have predictors? no shoes that don't fit? <laughs> I've heard that one. Yeah. But um, I, I don't want to predict the predictors. But I would say, um, a possible surprise out there. Um, everybody's lined up one way, and they've been waiting all uh, you know year Please. for interest rates on the long end to go up because of strong growth and strong inflation, yeah. right? And um, let's think about uh, on this issue of the dollar what could happen. It might take the sting out of some of the uh, inflation. What if, I'm just positing this, and I'm seeing a little glimmer in the leading indicators, what if uh, inflation doesn't run away? What if inflation starts to top out here? Uh, and that that's down the line. I think I'm typically the you know our stuff is way out in front. I think that's down the line. But if you have uh, inflation not running away and topping out, that starts to shift well, the dynamic a little bit. Lajonatsan with us and Mark Chandler to get this September started. Dollar strength is story in G10 and EM. So let's get the thoughts, shall we, of George Sanavelos, Deutsche Bank's global co-head of FX Research. George, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Just walk me through what you think underpins that dollar strength at the moment. Good morning from London. So the big driver is obviously uh, emerging market currencies that are leading um, this, this weakness uh, and the dollar strength. And if you look at uh, what's going on in terms of flows, you're seeing continued outflows from emerging market funds and a very large uh, rise in the inflows into short-term uh, government bond funds in, in the U.S. So there's really a portfolio rebalancing story going on on the back of uh, this high uh, risk-free rate um, in the U.S. And what's interesting is a 
lot of the EM external drivers have actually turned slightly better. EM data surprises, which were negative, have turned more positive over the summer months. U.S. yields have stabilized. So this really is about this ongoing portfolio rebalancing effect that kicked off in Q2 of this year. George, I spoke to Mohamed Alarian recently about this, and he basically said you can break this down into two parts. You need a credible external anchor out from the IMF. Argentina has done that. You need credible domestic policies. Argentina is doing that. And yet Argentina still can't tighten things up and stabilize things. Why do you think that is, George? Well, let's see, because the latest round of um, announcements has only just happened. So I, I think the jury is still out in terms of whether uh, this latest attempt at civilization um, will succeed. Uh, after all, we have to remember now interest rates are at nearly 60%. So it's extremely painful uh, for, for someone to be uh, long right. dollars against the Argentinian uh, peso. So uh, I, I think they've done uh, a lot more compared to two weeks ago. Uh, and let's wait and see right. over the next couple of weeks. But it might look a bit more positive. George, sir. You do a lot of fancy PhD kind of FX work in that. Would you explain what six zero sixty percent interest rates, or you know, John, help me here, twenty three percent in Turkey? What do those interest rates mean to mere mortals? Well, simply put, it's just extremely expensive for a speculator uh, to to be trying and pushing the dollar higher against, what about the public? Uh, against the peso. What's it mean uh, well, for, for the you, public? Know, you know, small businessmen in Istanbul? What's it mean? Ultimately, if you look at what's going on to emerging market currencies this year, there is one simple message, which is uh, the currencies and economies that are running current account deficits uh, just cannot attract the capital anymore. If you're running a deficit, it means you're buying more than you're selling to the rest of the world. So ultimately, part of this policy adjustment, you raise rates aggressively, which means you compress imports, you compress domestic demand, you compress consumption. Simply put, you just have to buy less from the rest of the world. And And part of that adjustment is the currency weakening as well. And right now, these rates aren't just 60%. They're 30% real. Inflation's running at 30%. They're 30% real interest rates. I mean, this is suffocating the economy. So we now have that classic EM dilemma. Got an economy like South Africa slipping into a recession this morning, reporting negative GDP growth for a second consecutive quarter. And George, my question basically is how much damage is being done as these economies try to manage what is set before them, which is upside risk to inflation and downside risk to growth. And they're doing their best to contain the upside risk to inflation. What happens to growth? Well, there, there is definite damage uh, to growth that's being done, and, and you can see that in, in the negative GDP numbers out of South Africa, obviously Argentina and Turkey. Uh, we're now going to be seeing a stagflationary type of situation. Uh, however, unfortunately, part of this damage is the solution that you need growth to slow down. So imports slow down, and all of a sudden, uh, your external balance starts to improve. Your current account, which is uh, very large in, in deficit at the moment in Turkey, uh, starts turning. And that is really the, the key point. One, when one starts to look for EM stabilization, is two things. One is value. So when do the currencies start becoming very, very cheap? They can't keep falling forever. And two is the external account starting to improve. Um, so that process has begun. I'm not yet sure it's enough uh, for the overall right. stability, but we're definitely beginning the process. Does the x-axis in this pending or maybe crisis Is it radically different than in previous upsets? I mean, if we're massively floating, if we've got all this sophisticated derivative stuff and fund flows and all the other creative stuff you guys live every day, is is it a different timeline than it was in 1998 or other enjoyments that we've had? 
Well, every every uh, crisis has its similarities um, and, and differences, uh, but I would say that the big difference uh, this time, if you look at a place like large external government debt requirements. This is private sector funding. It's the private sector that's too extended. Uh, and, and as a result, the adjustment needs to happen via the private sector as well, which, again, goes all the way back to this need to just shrink current account deficits, get them closer into balance. And then you'll see places like Turkey, India, Indonesia, yeah. uh, they'll look much better in a year. John, I'm bringing up here Brazil intraday. It just moved in um, I'm just getting up a three. To, yeah, it just spiked up here, 4.18. And if I go over to the Bloomberg, as we can do on the Bloomberg terminal in your car, if I look at a 24-day chart, we're almost back to August 30. How important is today, George, for Argentinian assets? When we open up and we start trading at 9 a.m. Eastern, the official, the formal start to peso trading, how important is it that that peso rallies? Well, I think it, it, it's very important in that Argentina has been at the forefront um, of, 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 of this EM unwind since the start of the year. So one of the first places where we would need to see stability as a signpost for, for broader EM stability is really Argentina. Um, as you did mention, uh, Argentina has been trying to do most of the things right. So um, if, if the peso can't stabilize, then it will be difficult um, for, for others. Yeah. So every day, um, every day is, of course, important. I don't want to just overstress the first uh, day essentially when people are back from the from the holidays but That's into the, the rest of q4 it, it is really important that argentina stabilizes given how much it's so moved. so final question george on this part of the conversation is what is the feedback loop if there is one into the u.s economy from the mess that we're experiencing in emerging markets right now well, it's a very interesting question, and if you go back to taper tantrum, uh, essentially you had the initiation of of, of the end of, of QE. Uh, initially, the Fed was sounding hawkish. It caused huge amounts of turbulence, turbulence in EM, and then you had the knock-on impact in terms of Fed policy. Um, now, it is a bit too early for that, I would argue, that it's not showing up in the data yet, but if this does continue until the end of the year, we will yeah. very soon be hearing from the Fed that external headwinds are becoming stronger. And remember, they're approaching neutral policy as well. So it's different uh, to be sounding right. hawkish when rates are closer to two than zero. One of the things we do here, folks, is George Cervales with us with Deutsche Bank. Well, in just under 25 minutes, the Senate Judiciary Committee will begin Four days of hearings on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here to tell us about it is Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law's Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, thank you very much for being with us. What exactly can we expect to hear from these hearings? Will it be Republicans in concerted support for the nomination and Democrats trying to score political points? What will actually happen as a result of these hearings? Well, we're going to have four days of hearings. The first day will just be um, introduction. So each of the 21 uh, Senate Judiciary Committee members will uh, introduce uh, what kinds of questions they're going to be asking him. Uh, and those questions will take place on Wednesday and Thursday. So we'll get a good sense of what we're likely to hear from the senators uh, later on today. What is going to be the focus of the questioning, let's say, from the Democrats? 
Well, we're likely to hear a lot about uh, what Brett Kavanaugh's personal views and uh, are on abortion, on LGBT rights, and on health care. And these are all issues uh, where he's expected to move the Supreme Court uh, once finally confirmed. And what do you believe his response will be? Will be will it be to offer detailed uh, sort of personal anecdotes or is it going to be, you know, kind of written from read from a statement? Well, since uh, the 1990s, uh, Supreme Court nominees typically don't answer very many questions. They'll answer, uh, you know, what they've previously yeah. ruled upon before, uh, but they're not going to be giving a lot of details on how uh, they view abortion and LGBT rights, and that's because they say that they don't want to seem like they've already prejudged an issue uh, that might come before right. them while they're on the Supreme Court. Let me ask you a, a jaded and cynical question, which is appropriate on this Tuesday. It's all, to me, hugely predictable. Am I right about that, or do you look for surprises along the way? Well, we really haven't gotten a lot of surprises from Supreme Court confirmation hearings since the 1990s when we got a bombshell on Clarence Thomas. You know, Brett Kavanaugh has been practicing answers to these questions for weeks. He's been through what they call murder boards, where they simulate questions from the senators. So all of these answers are likely to be uh, vetted and very... Okay, so so the questions questions are structured. He's been rehearsed, rehearsed, invented. Should our listeners tune in to these hearings or for a pro like you Kimberly is it just you just know what's you know you just know what's going to happen well, if, if the confirmation hearings for Neil Gorsuch are any sign, it's going to be pretty predictable. Uh, we'll get a lot of hard questions from, from Democrats and a lot of saucies from Republicans. And Brett Kavanaugh is likely to do very well in these confirmation hearings. He's a very likable guy. We'll probably see a lot of that. Uh, but I wouldn't expect to learn very much that we don't already know. Well, uh, Kimberly, if this is indeed the case... <laughs> Will the Democrats use this as a platform for the midterm elections? Yes, we're seeing that very much, uh, that the issues that Democrats are really focusing on uh, seem to be geared towards, uh, you know, energizing their base for the midterm elections. Again, abortion is going to be a huge issue during the confirmation hearings, um, and we've already seen a lot of opposition show up here. Uh, there's a rally over at the Supreme Court. There are women dressed up as handmaidens here in the uh, just outside the hearing room. Um, so Democrats very much are using this as something to project into the midterm election. All right. Well, I guess this is something that's going to go on for four days. Ed, is there any uh, chance that uh, we're going to get any kind of details about his past opinions that would be, let's say, newsworthy, or has that already been released? Well, he will likely get some questions uh, about how he's used presidential powers, uh, uh, something that he's ruled on a lot and something that he's written about a lot. Uh, So we can't expect him to answer uh, some of those questions, unlike some of the questions we'll probably get on abortion. And depending on what he says, it could be interesting um, to see how he's going to rule against the president or with the president who nominated him. Thank you for the update. Kimberly Robertson, greatly appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg government. I think you nailed it, though, Tom that this is just like boilerplate at this, I, at, I, this, at this time. I mean, as a general statement, Pim, would you suggest that post-Bork, everything changed? Yeah.
David Kotak with us. We've had a wonderful, eclectic set of guests to get us back into September and in season, and it is good for surveillance to end and end strong with David Kotak, a Cumberland advisor synthesizing economics into what to do with your money. Let's just start with the positioning, David. Where are you within your portfolios, cash, bonds, equities? Uh, Bonds, um, barbelled, that's an easy one. And we've been in that mode for a while. We're going to stay there in our leveraged volatility. That's a high-frequency trading strategy. We're 100% in cash. In core U.S., 20% in cash. And in the diversified U.S., 10% in cash. And they are biased towards domestic, U.S., small mid-cap, and underweighted risk elements in the international trade war sectors. Where do you hide in equities? If somebody says, I've got to be in equities, but I've got a risk profile like DCOTOC, where do you hide within sectors and ETFs in equities? We're overweight healthcare. We're overweight the banking financial sectors focused in the United States. We're overweight defense in the industrial sector. And we like transports because domestic U.S. transport, the ETF is just on fire and stays that way. There's a shortage of people. Prices are going to rise. There's pricing power in transportation, particularly truckers and rails. David Kotak, can you tell us what would change for your clients and for your investing strategy if there were to be changes to the capital gains tax code and capital gains were indexed to inflation? Would that change anything? In the immediate term, Tim, I don't think so. I think it makes a little bit of difference after that. Uh, it would make strategic changes. But we already had tax reduction. We're already at a tax rate where a couple of points difference, I don't think, makes much difference. I I think the bigger thing right now, it's right on our radar screen, it's this uh, expiration of the tax uh, benefit of funding an underfunded defined benefit pension liability. It's coming up on the 15th of September. In our view, it's been flattening the yield curve because of the unusual appetite for strips. There's a reason Explain why. Explain how this, how this works. And I mean, because not many people necessarily have a defined benefit plan. A, a, a quick summary, there's a tax code change. So if you have an unfunded liability to a defined benefit pension plan and you fund it today, you get a deduction at a 35% tax rate. If you wait till the end of this month, it's 21%. That's a huge incentive to fund it. Secondly, the penalty. Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp. Premiums are out, and those premiums favor using long-term treasury strips. And the strip appetite has exceeded, in our estimate, the auction of the 30-year treasury in the last few months. That changes in a matter of weeks how what the effects will be. We'll see them in October. October is one of those months... That investors mark on their calendar in red, uh, isn't it? Something about Halloween comes. Maybe this okay. year will come early. Have you been this much in cash? I mean, a blended portfolio, you know, mutual funds typically four, maybe outrageous is 5% in cash. You're 20, do I understand? Two zero twenty percent 20% in cash. 20% in core, 10 in the diversified, and in the high-frequency trading strategy, right. 100 in cash. We sold out of the high-frequency 
trading strategy last Why week. Why did you sell? It's mathematically driven, Tom. It's not okay. subject to human emotion. Oh, don't give me that. Come on. You're sitting in a boat up in Maine fishing. And, you know, you just said go to cash. That's why he has no emotion. Why no, 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 did the, you? No, no. The, the high-frequency trading can be run from a boat in Maine. It's the math that drives the decision. What did the math say? It what said, was the math? Like RSI had, was too strong? No, you had, it's a, it's a lot of computations. The bottom line oh, was man. there was asymmetric risk, disproportionate in market-based prices move. And we moved, and it's okay. so far a great sale. What's the bogey for this year for people? Are they all looking for 10%? That's a really sophisticated question. I, I, mean, I think the bogeys for the next several years are mid-single-digit returns. I think the long party of is over. Okay. Wow. We, we have headwinds. We have... So now, be satisfied. Don't be now, greedy. Be now, satisfied with mid... Oh, take mid-single-digits, compound them, and go fishing more often. The biggest issue here is this. If there is a settlement of trade war, China... U.S., Canada, peace breaks out. Everything's wonderful. Trump actually finds a smile to wear when he looks in the mirror. Then we have a whole mm -hmm. different arrangement. But I don't see that happening. What'd you learn up? At, what'd you learn up from your really important guests that you take to Lean's Lodge? You go, where is it? First, it's way north of Katahdin, right? Well, well it's a, a sort of at the distance of a Katahdin. You have to think Bangor, Maine, and then two hours north. To the Canadian border. Okay. Takeaway was simple. I could summarize the takeaway. Please. We have 30, 40 years of a numeracy-driven decision tree. Inflation, earnings, numbers, mm -hmm. uh, pathways, uh, central banks. We're used to numeracy. Trade is cliffs and shocks. Cliffs and shocks. There are no Z-scores on what happens with trade. Right. This is a new regime. We're not used to it. And we okay. haven't seen anything like it in a long time. How many people are up there, just as a general idea? You have 10 minds, 10 smart people? Well, the, with you? We, this is the largest Labor Day crowd ever, 27. Yeah, that's because the new... Red Sox are in first place. <laughs> All right. I knew there had to be an okay. explanation. Well, and look how the Phillies are doing. But, but seriously here, does that crew look at the moment we're in as a nation as a one-off, or do they see a staying power to trump theocracy trump theory well massive dis massive debate mm -hmm. we had everything uh, all political views the bottom line is no consensus in the group although f risk elements rising 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 if risk elements are rising and that's the consensus view what would it do to get you to be contrary i'd want to see some movement away from belligerency and ugliness and some diplomacy instead of bullying. We had Trump hard right Trump supporters. We had Sanders socialists there. We had everything in the mix. One common theme is this right. hateful belligerency accomplishes nothing. Within this one final question, David, one R.C. Whalen put out a photo this weekend from Lean's Lodge. Yeah, beauty. Of Beautiful. Of a 20-inch. Is that just like one of the stuffed fish off the wall <laughs> and you took it and flipped it? No, no, we had a great fishing Have you ever time. seen a fish that big caught out of that, that I have one swamp mounted. that you're in? Yeah, I have one mounted on the wall, even bigger. Yes, 24-inch small that, that mouth. Was that was quite a sturgeon. That was quite a sturgeon that he got out of there. I love your sturgeon picture. Very good. Sit around.
Uh, David Kotak, thank you so much for an update. Uh, that's the most cautious PIM I've heard Mr. Kotak in some time. Yes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.